When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. <laughs> Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be Mr. Briscoe. He is an Oklahoma legend, and despite being from Oklahoma, he's one of the greatest guys on the planet, WWE Hall of Famer, all-around good guy. And another good guy you talk about iconic was ECW and nothing more iconic than the BWO, the Blue World Order, and the Blue Meanie. Meanie, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I think think we're about to break the uh, internet here. Aren't we supposed to hate each other? Why why don't I hate you, man? What's your deal? I I hate I'm hating for you there, Brian. How about that? (laughs) Hey, matey. Hey, matey. I I, got to know something on on my telephone. uh, The background is blue there. Is that a special lighting feature you have? Or did you go to Home Depot with your T-shirts and say, I want this particular blue? And they they were able to match it up. Just a little swatch. I I took up to them. I, I have a couple ring lights here. I have a ring light here that lights me up. I got a blue light there and a blue light there that hits my my background and the wall's blue and shout out to mrs meanie for uh the aesthetic of hanging up photos and i got a little i love mrs meanie please give her my regard a big hug and a smooch in her afterwards what a what a wonderful lady how in the hell you ended up with that wonderful lady i don't know but congratulations john i don't know if you've ever had the pleasure to meet mrs meanie but she is a wonderful young lady and 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 man, what a sweetheart to take that take take care of Brian like she does, man. It's it's awesome. Meaning, you live, you're a Philly guy. Yes. And you know, I was later on in my career, me and Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter were known as the three stooges. And it got down because Sarge was so important to the company and they didn't want everybody laughing at him all the time because they needed to use him. So he kind of got taken out of the student deal and put into the commissioner's role where he was more authority and people didn't laugh at him all the time. But I understand uh, your, your home and your, your part of Philly is where the original students were actually from there. Did do you know Larry Finer? Any stories about Larry Finer and those guys like that? Yeah. The three stooges, uh, you know, born and raised in Philly, uh, Mo, Larry and Curly. Um, uh, I believe, uh, Curly would be uh, our brothers, I believe, but Larry fine. He, uh, he lived in my neighborhood and he originally had a friend who I love having friends who are old heads who you give you the stories about old Philly and stuff like that. They're like, yeah, Larry fine. He had his family had a house like a block away from you. So it's, it's pretty cool. And then if you go to South street in, uh, in Philly, they have the uh, birthplace of Larry fine. And there's a huge mural 
on the side of the building of him playing the violin. So it, it's now a restaurant, but you can go there and have dinner at the uh, birthplace of Larry Fine from the Three Stooges. Awesome. You think in Stamford, Connecticut, they'll eventually have a mural of uh, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe playing the violin somewhere and <laughs> as, as the old two stooges? <laughs> man, what a great right, what a great deal that was, man. Uh coming out to Real American and just I mean, you had the one of the highest rated segments on in raw history. You know, I guess well, the, the JBL takes credit for that because I, I did allow him on my segment there. And yeah. uh yeah, the whole and, uh, segment mini was a uh, uh, me versus Ron Simmons in a singles match, and the Stooges versus uh, Mean Street Posse. So that whole fifteen minutes uh, did an eight point six rating, <laughs> which I think is could be the highest or second highest as regular rating. There was a higher, you know, overall the run over, but not not regular rating. I don't think I'm wrong. Of course, that guy that went to Hollywood and became a big star claims he's got the biggest rating, and we'll let him get by with it because he's a big star, and who knows? We might need him getting little bit parts of his million-dollar movies, and you know, we'll become those stars, too. But spe- speaking to you know, Ron Simmons, he said, him and Ron Simmons, what a stiff-ass match that had to be. <laughs> can you can you imagine that? Oh, wait a minute. You can't imagine that, Brian. Now, is that guy a stiff son of a bitch up in the corner there or what the hell tell him tell that brother and then there was a just to you know start this show off let's start it off with (laughs) big pots let's start it off with a big ass pot let's get it right out of the way the people (laughs) and maybe maybe we can figure out a way to keep them tuned in the entire show but let's start off with a big punch you you my friend were thrown into the uh the pit with with that stiff son of a gun up there, and, and if, if I known it was going to be that like that, you could have come and asked me for advice because I have a winning record. Not only a winning record, I got a dominating record against that big ass Texan up there. So, you know, Gerald is about two thousand and two. Is his record against me? I do have two victories, but I'm like well, he does have two victories, but both victories he caught me unaware of what was going on, sort of like he got you kind of unaware of what was going on. Brian. <laughs> it happens, man. I mean, uh, brother hit me so hard, I thought I owed him money, but uh, you probably did, didn't know it, man. But the little inside secret nobody knows about he's a Cowboys fan, I'm an Eagles fan, and we just can't get along, man. Yeah. And I hate the <laughs> fact that Wilbur Montgomery left Abilene Christian, my old college, and went and became an all pro for the the enemies, the Philadelphia Eagles, and that was all the heat that there was. Yeah, it, it, it all goes back to football. So, so you know. that's what started the the, the rivalry between Layfield and many was a, was a football player there, right? Am I read this right, or am I goofy? Not, well, you're always goofy. I'm, I'm just playing with you. I'm wow. Playing. <laughs> wow. Now you and I got him, brother. Wow. I uh, keep punch as hard as that Texas. Don't tell the just to, for the for all of us curious guys out there, walk us through how that started. And 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 I know you were the innocent one. I'm gonna take your side hey, on this. Hey, just wait a minute, Gary. What are you doing? <laughs> This is my chance. Or hey, just to give you the heads up, I talked to Jerry earlier and I said, Hey, listen, I, like I, I've never told you know, and he talked about the thing at all because me and I are friends and I don't want to bring up something and say, Well, this was my version of it. And then it gets back to you. Well, John said this, and then you, know, then you got to respond. So I want you to know, Jerry is going off into business for himself right now. 
So in other words, you're calling me the liar right here on our podcast. You're, calling, you're, you're the spoon that stirs the pot, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, I want to hear your side of it because he he gave me that jaded side on his, his part of the story earlier today. I want to see the truth of the matter and how it compared with what those Texans are. Because you know what Texans are known for. This is my chance to really throw this ass under under the bus. Here. <laughs> he, he might not get you license plates on that bus, but I'll get you some serial numbers that you threw under. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I think uh, you know it just comes down to it was a competitive atmosphere during the uh, the Monday Night Wars. Everybody's a little bit one edge and stuff like that, but. Uh, you know, I, on my, my, myself, I, I admit I had a comedy of errors on my part coming into the company. Uh, you know, my first weekend in, uh, I debut in Philly. We're supposed to be in Baltimore the next day and then go to Hartford for uh, raw. So me being the typical indie guy and never flying, I was like, oh, I'll just drive the loop. I'll go Philly, Baltimore, Baltimore up to Connecticut. No problem. And then. Earl Hebner goes, no, we actually fly you now. I was like, oh, fine, cool. So I do uh, Philly. I go to Baltimore. And uh, Baltimore, I, I check in for my flight. And uh, I, I look at my ticket. I go, 1A. Hmm. That's uh, that's awfully close to the front of the plane. Huh. I, I looked out. I go, 1A. Am, am I like behind first class? He goes, uh, yeah, that's pretty close up. I was like, you know, he, he, Al's not letting me off the hook. Right. So I get on, the, I get to the plane and I see my seat and I go, Oh no, I'm done for. I'm like, ah, oh. my first weekend in, they're putting me in first class. Right. So I sit there and I try to just like be inconspicuous stuff like that. And I'm just like, you know, hopefully nobody sees me. It's me, boss man, Sean Michaels and one other person, <laughs> excuse me. And, uh, I knew I know it's in trouble. You know, one guy comes in and gives me the look. Another guy comes in and gives me the look. But it wasn't until Mick Foley walked into the plane. He goes, "Oh, meanie, meanie, no, meanie." This is like a horror movie. I was like, "What, Mick? What, Mick? Please take me with you." So we take off and um, we get to uh, we're, we're flying, and then out of the you know back in the plane, somebody goes. I don't know who says. Everybody goes. Who was I? I was like, oh. Why the f is the blue meaning in first class? And I'm just like, oh my god! If there was a door next to me, I would have done the nasty plunge. So <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I I, I watched some of your interviews getting ready for this one, and I yeah. and I was this morning. I saw maybe on Hannibal or something. I I saw you tell this story. I, I don't I don't remember it. I kind of <laughs> vaguely remember. So I don't remember that the, there being heat. I know if you were there there would have been heat with the boys, but I don't remember if that, if I yelled that out or not. So that was not something that I had long-term heat with If, if that indeed was me and back in, back then that could very well could have been me. Yeah. So I'm not denying it was me. I it very well could have been me. I don't remember. I swear to God. I don't know who it was. Like that's the million dollar question. You know, who, you know, that's like who was on the grassy knoll, you know, who yelled, who, why the F is the blue meaning of first class. But uh long story short, uh, this comes back to Jerry. Uh, we land in Connecticut and I'm a bundle of nerves. I'm right. It's me, McFoley, Bob Holly, and we're driving the building. I'm like, guys, did I mess up? They're like, eh, you'll be all right. I was like, nobody's uh -huh. going to poop in my bag. Are they? <laughs> and Bob Holly goes, 
I don't think they poop in bags anymore, though. Yeah, it'll be all right. <laughs> but we get to the building and I get called to like a side office as Jerry and Lanza. And for whatever reason, Bob Holly came along and um, you were like, Meanie, we know you're uh, new here. Uh, <laughs> next time uh, you know what to do and you know, it knows it's a mistake. But I just think I, I kind of like stumbled into the company and I thought maybe I had a little bit of residual heat for you know, the first class ticket and, and stuff like that. But as far as us, uh, I can't really put a, a finger on it. You know, just, it just, I just felt like, uh, well, I, it all comes down to me being green too. You know, I was only in the business a couple of years and, you know, not knowing how to handle things. And you might've been saying things as a joke and maybe I took it legit. It, man. I was, I was back in the, and back in the day, I said a lot of stuff that I considered a joke that other people didn't. Yeah. Fairness, so you know, it's, it's, that sense of humor is is it that way, many Brian. Let me let, let that for the for that fans out there, the few fans that we have that are listening to this. <laughs> uh, uh, there there's, there's several traditions on the inside of the wrestling circuit. There, one of them is if you're a rookie, and you sometimes you have have absolutely no control over. But if you're a rookie or you just come into a territory or, or organization and you get a ticket and it's a first class ticket and you get on there and you see all these other guys, these big 300 pounders all going to the back and you're sitting over there in the corner hiding in that. And yeah, that, that's what you do. You kind of make yourself as small as possible. So nobody else see you put a newspaper up over your head, but it never fails. They, they recognize you right away. But the old time honored secret, and if you don't know this stuff, you don't know any coming in from an independent uh, circuit. Many didn't know in the defense of many that, you know, you, you get up and you give them your seat. You, you When you give them that ticket, you, you assume everybody's flying first class or everybody's flying up there. So. So it was it was an honor for sake I could see happening and 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 being from the independent scene, those guys like you say Earl Hebner had to smarten you and hey we flying nowadays yeah. you know because back in India you just got in your car and you did the three four hundred mile trip and you were happy to be making the trip because you knew you were gonna make money the next night so you're coming into an organization of flights, you don't know all the rules and regulations. So they hand you a ticket. You just get on a damn plane and sit where the ticket says, says the set there. And there's always some wise-ass bully in the back going to make a comment about it. And and you got that comment made. So I, I can empathize with you and and, 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 and know, where, know where you're coming from. How, how, how you just wanted to shrink and, and, uh, you know, that's the reason when you came in to see Land and I, there wasn't really a big deal about it because we realized the environment that you came from and you did you just didn't know any better, but you you got a lesson right away. Well, to, to, to expand on your point, uh, when they brought me brought me back to work with John uh, or SmackDown, it was uh, July 4th, 2005. And uh, they they flew me in the night before and we did the show and then we're catching the red eye out and I get my plane ticket and it's a first class ticket. And I go, ha, 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 fool me once. I go, uh, hey, uh, Mr. Steamboat, how would you like to sit in first class? 
No, meanie, I'm good. You want to send first class? No, I didn't do that. But well, uh, you said first class. <laughs> <laughs> I, he was like, no, no. Then I went to Tony Gurria. Hey, hey, Mr. Gurria, it how would you like to send first? Oh, meanie, I'm good. And eventually he, yeah, he <laughs> I grabbed him like a I'm surprised he friend. didn't throw you out of the way or take a ticket and cash it in. And That's right. That's what I, I was thinking the same thing. Gurria would take it, cash it in, and black cookie. <laughs> That's the lesson. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a mistake, but just learning from it and not repeating it. Is you know, we, we were in uh, Europe one time and talking about mistakes with travel. Lance Cade, who was a wonderful young guy, uh, ended up sitting. There was always the seat in the back of the bus. It was first, it was Andre's, then it was Yoko's, then it became Taker. So whoever it was was you know a big guy who had a problem fitting you know in a further up seat or out of respect, you would give it to the the old veteran. Well, Lance gets in the best seat on the bus just because he thinks, hey, there's a comfortable seat. I'm going to sit in it. And same thing. You know, guys were ribbing him about, hey, uh, you know, that's that's not your seat. What do you think, your big shot? Well, he kind of took it as I can't back down because then I show weakness. Finally, somebody pulled him aside and said, hey, Lance, you know, they're trying to give you the heads up that that's for taker. And that's a matter of respect. And when he did, when he realized it right away, things change. But you're you don't know until you know, right. Until you're in the thick of it, right in the middle. And if you, and when you're in it, you feel like there's a million cars coming at you from a bunch of different directions. You're like trying to, you know, it's like that meme from uh, the hangover when he's doing the math in his head and you're just trying to figure out the equation, but it's the, the best answer is usually so simple. It doesn't come right away. You know, and there's like a lot of things that, you know, I was just green and just, didn't realize I was doing them wrong until somebody pulled me aside and said, Hey, this is what you should have done, you know, and stuff like that. So, so you're the green mini back in those days, <laughs> extremely green. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of green, uh, the night you turn red in the ring. Thanks. Oh, to Jerry, would you stop? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. I will hey, man. Jerry, this is Jerry, my Jerry, one Jerry, opportunity that I've had, and I'm taking advantage of it. Meaning, you got to understand, he's not, he's from Oklahoma. He's not that smart. He's not going to quit <laughs> until he gets some answer. So, Jerry, I will say this because I, I don't want to relook it. I didn't know that Meanie had the cut from uh, Sandman. From, right. from, well, I, I, I had no idea. And as far as the incident, I, I, uh, after when Meanie came back in, I did pull him in, in a private room and I apologized. I said, sorry for the whole thing and for my part. And, uh, I was also sorry about the fact that ECW was, had such a good pay-per-view and that what was remembered was me and Meanie rather than the, the good work that, that the guys had put in. Well, here's the deal, right? It's like, uh, when I initially got released from ECW, I did an interview for, like one wrestling or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I thought, you know, the, the things I didn't know, I took as bullying and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I did an interview and it just be shocking. I went, Oh yeah. I loved my time in ECW, but JBL or Brad, I, well, you weren't JBL yet. I said, Bradshaw was an asshole. And then I think that little quote became like the game telephone where, one person hears it. He tells the next person, you know how the boys are. And by the time he got back to John, it probably became blue mean. He said, you're the you know worst human being on the face of the world. You know, you, you know, people like to add stuff to it. So I think by the time it got to John, he was like, what's the heat? What's the, what's the beef with me? <laughs> what, what did I do? But, uh, you know, and then just, you know, things happen. 
we did we did the uh the pay-per-view and everything but the most important thing is you know we got to that smackdown uh july 4 2005 and you know john approached me and said hey uh you want to go talk and i said absolutely and uh, what was going through your mind mainly when he oh said my that God. Here, here's the deal. It's like we've all been to TV and there's signage everywhere, you know, catering, kayfabe, Vince's office. And also, so as we're walking, I'm seeing less signage. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, if me and John go in this room and there's plastic on the floor, I'm running. Uh, it's going to be like Pesci and Goodfellas getting whacked as he walks through the door. But, uh, you know, John, uh, we went in their room, like two men, and he shut the door behind me. He said, hey, we can either fire, we can make money. I was like, well, I'd like to make some money, sir. And, uh, we had, a, we had a heart to heart talk. You know, I, t- I explained everything at the time, you know, how I thought he bullied me. And, uh, he told me about his experiences with the NFL and playing for the Raiders and, you know, a little bit of, you know, ball breaking ribs and stuff like that. Uh, how he long kicked his ass for three weeks in a row. That, that did happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> you never know with Briscoe. You never know. <laughs> you, you never know. <laughs> you just never know. You never know. But, uh, yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, like there's one incident. Here, here's a perfect example of what I thought was bullying and how I probably could have handled it better. We're on a flight. I forget where we're going to. I'm a window seat. Matt Hardy and John are behind me. So, uh, John's talking about Vader. He's like, man, he does an amazing moonsault, you know, but he's got funny hair and, you know, he's a big fat guy, you know, imagine that big fat guy, funny hair doing a moonsault. I'm like, I'm like, fuck, he's talking about me. And <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was always told that if somebody's rubbing it, don't sell it. You know, the best sells the no sell kind of thing. But I think if I would just went to turn around and went, Hey, John, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> you know, I think it just went, just everybody would have laughed and we would have got on with our business. You know what I'm saying? And these are just like little things that play back in my mind that I took as bullying. And then. Yeah. And a lot of it was just ball busting. You know, that's, yeah. that's really what it was. And, and I meant nothing by it. Like, like that comment. I had no idea you'd take that as bullying. I'm just ball busting. We're on the fly. Yeah. You know, we're just flying somewhere. We, I used to do that with, you know, Godfather and, and take yeah. Ron. We'd always say stuff to, and Jared and Gerald. <laughs> we did that stuff with everybody. It's not just like we did it with the new guys. We did it with the old guys. We, that was just our way of, of having fun. And it was misconstrued a lot. And, you yeah. know, I, I shouldn't but, realize that some of that would be misconstrued from people that I didn't know. And the, the funny thing is, like, I was like the new kid at school. You know, uh, when you get in the wrestling business, you're always going through this uh, process of reestablishing yourself. And you could have been the coolest kid in grade school, but once you go to high school, you're a freshman. And then you become the coolest kid in high school. You go to college again, you're a freshman. And then you graduate college and then you got to become an intern and start the process all over again. I might've been whoever I was in ECW, but now I'm in WWE and they don't give a crap about what I did in ECW. I have to reestablish myself within that locker room. And I didn't know, I didn't want to step on any toes. I didn't want to get any heat. I just wanted to kind of show up, do what I had to do, get along with everybody and go back, go home to my family at the end of the day. So it's just a matter of, you know, if I could put this brain in that body back then, a lot of this stuff that happened, you know, between me and you probably would have been squashed right off the bat. I, if I knew how to react to it and, and 
sell for it properly, you know, just, yeah. And I've learned over the years that, you know, you don't, people don't know, you just don't bust their balls. You know, it's, it's, it's construed wrong. It's taken wrong. And, you know, I didn't even think about it at the time, you know, yeah. you know, hope I'm a different guy now than, than I was then. Maybe I'm not. Jerry, Jerry will tell you I'm not. Cause I still bust his balls. <laughs> I, I sent Jerry a note every Thanksgiving for like the last 30 years and tell him how thankful I am that somebody discovered uh, the natives here and he gets so mad at me and I sent him a note on Columbus day and Thanksgiving. Cause you know, we have everything that we have every rivalry you can have. He's a Okie. I'm a Texan. He's a native. I'm a cowboy. So th- there's a pretty good rivalry going on here. Also that Brian, this guy, as you know, and we all are, we've traveled the worldwide, right? We've seen everything, you know, and years, years ago, I have for my Facebook logo because I didn't know any better. I had a I had a a, a carving uh, of a Native American that I use as my what do they call it avatars your Facebook or thing or whatever the hell it is. But that my picture was a wooden Indian. So John got the bright idea. No matter where he traveled, I think he would pay people to take him to to wherever they had a Native American carving at. That's right. And he would stand there with his arm around the guy, you know, hey, Briscoe, I ran into your uncle in, uh, in Belarus, Russia, or wherever <laughs> So I have these Native American photos of John all over the world. And, you know, we, we'd make comments back and forth. And then, you know, just show you, show you how people can form an opinion. All of a sudden, John starts getting these messages. You're a racist SOB for doing yeah. that to poor old Mr. Briscoe. You know, and I'm the baby face of the whole yeah. thing. Jerry put it up and on I'm the one Twitter. that started the deal. Jerry you put it up on Twitter, that. this picture of this Native American carving that I'd sent. And I sent it to Jerry. He goes, look what JBL just sent me. I get all these racist comments. It's his profile pic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, Jerry, delete it, delete it. I'm getting called. That's my, that's my best friend. Would you please stop? Hey, well, we we have a Columbus uh, Columbus statue here in South Philly. I'll have to take you to next time. Uh, then I'll be taken down, and just like all the other statues, I'll be taken down. And, and Andrew Jackson, you know, and all the guys like that. I mean, you know, they well, if you're going to take down the statues, be right to everybody, not you know, be right to me too. You know, I got I. I got feelings too, believe it or not, you know, and I'm Thanksgiving, you know, it's one day that I get to vent and John, John is finally, <laughs> you know, the Okies always are educating Texans. John, John finally realizes my side of the story on Thanksgiving and he agrees with me. I you know? completely agree with Jerry's side on every bit of it. 100%. <laughs> I'm surprised, John, you haven't uh, started a rumor that Jerry's really Italian, like G.J. Strongbow or something. <laughs> oh, boy. I had no but I will now. I sent Jerry uh, subscriptions to Texas Monthly, <laughs> Texas Parks and Wildlife, every Texas magazine I could find uh, for years. And his brother Jack found them in his house one time. He goes, what are these? <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a big family reunion. I think it's uh, a close to Thanksgiving, so all my family comes over, and they, you know, you make Sunday and, gravy like yeah, an Italian would. You know? Exactly. Little they know that little did John know that in the back of those Texas magazines, there's a lot of great recipes in there for a lot of great food that most of it originated in Oklahoma and the Texans, like everything else, they just stole it and you know made it their own. So. 
I would use those, my wife would use those Texas uh, monthlies. And man, I had a stack of them like this. He thought he was pulling the wool over mine. The vet was okay. The magazines were okay. What really got me is I, you know, I go back to the body shop. About <laughs> two days later, after I get back to the body shop, I would start getting these calls. You know, I'm trying to do business and everything. Is the damn retirement home in Texas want me to move to the great state of Texas, retire in the great state of Texas? He was going through those magazines, getting all these retirement centers and filling out a form for me, which I think is against the United States Postal <laughs> Department rules and regulations, and put my name and phone number on it. So all these people in Texas are calling me, trying to get me to move out there to a damn retirement home. Number one, I'm not old enough to retire. Number two, I'm damn sure not going to retire in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That reminds me of a lot of the great rib wars that used to happen in the ECW uh, between like Nova and Al Snow, where like they would just call it like back in the day was one eight hundred dial a mattress. You send like <laughs> tw- ten mattresses. You know, Bucci would send. You know, Nova would send ten mattresses to Al Snow's house, or Al uh, would call a local. Uh, That's great. Pool company come out to survey the the land to uh, insert a pool, and you have to explain to these people, look. You know, I'm not, I'm not, but the greatest rib ever was, um, uh, ECW was in Ohio and, uh, Nova called the, Al was from Lima, Ohio. And he called, uh, Nova called the Lima ASPCA and said, and gave Al's address and said, there's a, uh, a Jake Roberts there. Uh, he owns several snakes and it looks like one of them's gotten out and the local ASPCA shows up to to Al Snow's house to collect these snakes and it made like it's such big news in a small town that the local you know five o'clock news shows up and this whole big rib happens and it's amazing it's it's insane like some of the ribs they would do like kind of harmless but you know (laughs) they're harmless man and none of them were meant to have you know speaking of uh Al Snow in Lima Ohio which is definitely no uh uh Philadelphia PA yeah. How did a how did a PA Philly guy like you get end up in in Iowa, Ohio getting trained by Al Snow? Uh, like like all of us here, we all love wrestling. I've loved it since 1981. You know, my first match I ever saw was Tony Green and Rick Martel against Fuji Saito. You know, well, you were hard up. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tony. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. You did. It's like you know anything. You do what you, you work with what you got. You know, you know, like the catalog. You know, like the uh, uh, Victoria's Secret catalog as a teenager. You work with what you got. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, lifelong fan. Uh, eventually, in high school, I became friends with uh, a kid named Justin who smartened me up to the newsletters. And I started reading about different wrestling schools and stuff like that. And I was actually going to go to the Malenko school in Tampa. Um, I had done the tryout the monster factory with Larry Sharp, uh, in 91, something like that. Uh, headbanger thrasher put me through my, my first tryout, uh, for the school. And, uh, was thrasher was there. Larry Sharp was there. Uh, Dennis Corluzo was there and out of like maybe. 16 guys to try it out. They pulled four into the office to talk about it. And then we, we, I, I met with Larry and they told me the, the, the pricing and all that stuff. And I just molded over, but then I started 
you know, looking into, I had seen the Malenko brothers against the British Bulldogs and all Japan pro wrestling. I became a huge Malenko's fan, Dean and Joe. It's like, I want to go there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, you know, I started, I wrote, uh, I, I found a thing for Malenko school and, uh, the observer sent it in. I started corresponding with a, a woman named Phyllis Lee. Um, I'm not sure if you, do you know Phyllis, Jerry? I know Phyllis. She's she, a wonderful lady. She was one of the, the original divas here in, uh, in Florida championship. Right. She was gorgeous back then, but she was like Malenko's, uh, business manager. Yeah. And she started writing to me and, uh, we corresponded for like maybe a year. And, uh, after high school, I started working in the casinos, saving up money, uh, you know, 50% went to the house, 50% went to, uh, you know, tuition. And then, uh, I eventually, uh, she was taught, we were talking about going to Malenko. So she was you know, telling me like how much it costs to live down there. And I was like, I only got so much saved, blah, blah, blah. And then she, uh, she said, well, you know, there is another school in Ohio, uh, Al Snow. He, um, uh, maybe you've heard of him. He's having a really big feud with Sabu. And I had started reading about Al and I never met him or I never, uh, I had met him or seen him in person, but I was like, you know what? On blind faith, on Phyllis's Lee, Phyllis Lee's word, I sent her my Twitter <coughs> and I was like, I'll go to, uh, at the Al Snow school. So it was the day after WrestleMania 10. Uh, it, it's, it's great. The great thing about wrestling is you can, you know, nail down dates to certain things because of wrestling the day after WrestleMania 10, I load up my car at the time we were living, I was living in Atlantic city. And uh, I drove from Atlantic city to Ohio and, uh, I get to the school. Were, you, were your parents behind this move or did you have support at home to do this? I had support. I had reluctant support because as a kid, I grew up a severe asthmatic, uh, every fall and every spring I've spent at least two weeks in a hospital bed with a, a oxygen tent over my bed. You know, you know, uh, every, uh, you know, until, uh, at least 13, I was in a hospital every spring and fall. Uh, I had to take, uh, I had a nebulizer machine at home where I had to breathe in me medicine every day. Every Thursday, I had to go to a doctor's office to get a needle. See, Layfield, you was picking on a man that couldn't even breathe. <laughs> when you stop. When you stop. <laughs> but, uh, I hate you, Jerry. I hate you. I hate you, yeah. too. Our friendship has ended. Hey, let's talk to me. Okay. <laughs> But uh, luckily, I found a, a doctor, uh, Dr. Hugo Altamoreno, who's a lung specialist, and he got, got me on the right path. So, you know, I was, but the whole time I'm telling my family, I, I want to be a pro wrestler. They're like, that's cute. You know, knowing that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't play football in high school. I was allergic to the field, you know, because I was allergic to grass. I couldn't play football. So, and they didn't have amateur wrestling. They get rid of my sophomore year. So I couldn't really do athletics, but I wanted to do this thing was highly athletic. And, uh, my, my family, my, I was raised by my grandparents and my mom and, uh, they were there. They, I mean, they threw a big party for me the night before. I don't know if it's because they believed in me or I was just leaving the house. They were just throwing a party. I don't know. what's going. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I get to, I, you know, they, they were there, they were, they were, they were cheering me on. And, um, I, I go to Al's and I get there and that, that, that whole drive there was another story. You know, my, my bad, my alter, alternator dies in Columbus, Ohio, a windshield wiper flies off during a rainstorm is like planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, with John Candy and, you know, anything that could happen happened. So I get there, I go, uh, I, you know, and Al's school was amazing. It was in an old Masonic temple. 
Uh, seven, uh, there were seven stories we had six and seven and uh i go up and like his school looked like a miniature version of the manhattan center uh because he it, we had the the florida masons had so there's like the arena and then there's like a balconies around and stuff like that and there's like little uh dressing rooms and stuff like that and there's living quarters uh in the place so i go up the elevator I go, uh, hi, is Al Snow here? He goes, hi, I'm Al Snow. I'm leaving because he had to drive up to northern Michigan to get uh, pads for the the ring from Dan Severn. So like I'm sitting there, this new kid in town and I'm with his students and uh, there's like all these characters there. They got one guy, the lumberjack, who called himself the lumberjack and Pete the pirate. And then it's just like one of those things where like, you know, I hadn't even seen Al Snow wrestle. I'm going here and I'm sitting there with these guys. Hey man, you want to see me practice my interest? I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, <laughs> had you called out to let him know you're coming? I did all this through Phyllis. Uh, Phyllis did, was did, the, so did Al know you were coming? Oh, Al knew I was coming, but we had never talked, which is, right. it, which is a, a huge leap of faith. You know, I sent a couple grand to Phyllis Lee and, uh, wow. Al's expecting you. And, you know, you all hear all the horror stories about training. You know, people take the money, you go show up to the school the next day and there's no school, you know, here I am driving 13 hours to Ohio and, uh, just on blind faith. And it, it was actually the best, you know, risk I could have taken in my, my life and my career because Al became a big brother to me. Um, he had, to, he had been in the business at that time, 13 years. And then, um, he, uh, you know, uh, he was starting to make a name for himself with his feud with Sabu and. Eventually, you know, I, I lived there for like a year and a couple months, uh, he started making waves with Smoky Mountain, then got, went to WWE. But, you know, the time I spent, I mean, he, he was my big brother. You know, I, I grew up, uh, I have a sister, but she was so old, much older. I was technically an only kid. So he, he became the big brother I never had. Did you have a place to stay when you were going out there already? Or did, how did well, that work? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, th th that's the thing. Like Malenko's. I would have to pay like 600 a month for like an efficiency an apartment, yeah. an apartment, but at our school, you live in the school because there's living quarters. Like I said, there's like the first floor is the, you, you walk into the arena. That's the school part. You go down the hall. There's Al's office around there's bedrooms. And then there's stairs and a balcony with more bedrooms. So, uh, when it came to training, it was kind of like a football camp where, he did morning sessions and, and afternoon sessions. So every morning I got up at 9 a.m. I worked out with Al for three hours. And then uh, he would take a break for the afternoon and come back about six or seven and then do the night sessions because his school, some guys came from all over to train with Al. They would come over from Indiana. They would come down from uh, Michigan, from Canada, Pennsylvania, all over. So not only was I, you know, there's a lot of times where I'm working out with different guys from around the world, like Canada and, and stuff like that. We had somebody come over from England. We had somebody come over from New Zealand. I'm working with all these different people. And then sometimes it was just me and Al, which was like awesome. But like some of the best lessons with Al is like when he would go to, it's kind of like school. Uh, we have a road trip on Friday. Al's got a booking. That, that was like our trip to the museum, you know, in high school, you know? Huh. So I would drive with Al to the, like, whatever show he was doing in Michigan or wherever. And those car rides were the best learning wow. experience I could ever ask for, you know, just either if it was a group with us or just one-on-one, -on -one. just, you know, what I would talk to Al about certain things and he would explain certain things, but then 
he would, I would go and watch his match and he would do the thing. He explained to me in the car. This is so I could see him do it and visualize it. So on the ride back home, he's like, did you see me do the thing? I was like, that was brilliant. You know, and car rides like that, you know, I picked up fairly good on like, you know, the, 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 the ins and outs and psychology of just, you know, traveling without, because, you know, you know, and that, that's why I think, uh, you know, I wish a lot of the kids today had that experience of, you know, be able to, you know, everybody's flying everywhere now, you know, the, the best thing you could do as a young talent today is get a group, uh, get a crew, you know, find a booking four or five guys in the car, drive 13 hours to a booking and just, you know, have a shared experience and, you know, just talk about the business and the love of the business and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And one of the differences now is you, you, you don't have, we didn't, ha- we didn't have these, you know, we didn't have the phones, right. we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any of that stuff. So it's just us in a car. You know, yeah. I rode with Al. I rode with Al a lot. I love Al. I think Al's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, he looks, he hasn't aged. I'm not sure what happened, but I saw him the other day on Facebook. He looks like Thanos now. I mean, <laughs> he looks like a freaking Avenger. I'm like, what the hell? I look terrible and I'm falling apart. He's becoming Lee Haney. <laughs> what do you mean falling apart? <laughs> yeah, I, I done fell apart. <laughs> but we you know, we didn't have anything but each other. Yeah, you know, and so I don't know. I don't know if we'd have had the cell phones and the social media and all that stuff. If I think we would have still had the conversations in the car, but we didn't have the option. You know, and now now these young people, you know, they, they have they have a, they have a brand to look after. You know, they're looking after their social media brand, their Twitter brand, their Instagram, their TikTok, all that different stuff. We didn't have any of that. We just went to a next town. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's, there's several road trips. Like if, you know, you're in the mountains, you got no radio, you got to turn that off. And you're forced to talk, you know, yeah, you, you have conversations, you know, shared experiences, learn about somebody. You know, there's guys I trained with who are still friends with me to this day just for, because we had that social interaction of learning about each other, going outside. And, you know, one weekend when we, you know, I was away. I went to Canada with the Canadian students and hung out and got to go to Canada and came back. And it was like a a really cool learning experience. And like, you know, Gerald, you said, you know, how the boy from the the East coast, you know, get used to living in Ohio. It was a little bit of a culture shock too. You know, you know, I was basically an only kid uh, leaving home for the first time. And, uh, you know, when I was out there, I, I was hit with the, uh, a little bit of a sucker punch, you know, two months into the, uh, training experience, my grandmom calls and tells me, you know, my grandfather's dying of cancer. And, uh, you know, that was like one of my first life challenges, you know, just what do I do? You know? And my grandfather gets on the phone and says, don't come home. Just, this is your dream. This is what you're going to do. Do it. You know, my, my grandfather, he wasn't even like, you know, my, my blood grandfather, he was, you know, through marriage and stuff like that. But he raised me like I was his own kid and uh, he was my biggest hero. And, uh, you know, occasionally I would still, you know, do a, a weekend trip home, see how everybody was doing, but he said, don't you dare quit do this. So that added to the fuel of, I needed to do this. I had to do this because I'm spending, I'm missing quality time at home with my grandfather. Who's uh, he had asbestosis from working in chemical wow. plants for years. Mm-hmm. So he was like, nope, you know, you do this. And, you know, that was, a, that was a bigger, you know, even a bigger motivating factor. You know, I can't screw this up, you know. Was Al one of your big factors for getting into ECW? 
Uh, ECW was uh one separately for, aside apart from Alpha. There, there was there's there a couple uh, little Easter eggs for me to try to get an ECW. Um, Al, I had gone to a couple shows with Al. I was still trained with Al, and Al was going out back east to do shows. And I would ride out with him. He was working. Uh, he worked Benoit. He worked uh, Samu Nishimura. He worked Taz on a couple of shows. I would drive out to the shows, come back with him. So I th- and then uh, Sabu, <clears throat> credit to him, he started running shows in Michigan. And uh, he didn't want his shows to look like everybody else's shows. You know, everybody uses, you know, the Michigan scene was mainly, you know, Scott DeMore and his students. So Sabu used Al Snow's students to have somebody different. So there was a show where Sabu booked Dreamer, Paulie, and Taz on uh, his show. And there was a match where uh, me and uh, one of our students, uh, Sean Brown, where we're doing a match, uh, loser gets his head shaved. And we're trying to do the thing where we screw the fans out of the, 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 our heads being shaved. And we're like taunting them. And Paulie and Sabu hit the ring and just lay us out. And, you know, Paulie hits us with the phone. We go down and then Sabu shaves our heads in the ring. So flash forward to, you know, uh, later on, uh, you know, there was a series of shows I did. I was doing for Norm Con- uh I'm sorry. There's a series of shows I was doing back east. I did a show in Baltimore, West Virginia, and Pittsburgh. I kept running into Raven and Stevie. So, uh, you know, and Raven, you know, you know, Raven, he's like, yeah, I got this idea for you, kid. Uh, we want to have, a, you know, Stevie's my lackey. We need a lackey for a lackey. You're a big guy. You could do a moonsault, all this stuff. Uh, you, do you want to do it? I was like, absolutely. So he, I come to the next ECW show and Raven introduced me to Paulie. He goes, Hey, you're the kid. I shaved. You're the kid. We, we knocked you out. You shaved your head. And like the, the fact that he remembered that and the fact that I was willing to do something like get my head shaved in the middle of the ring for no money, you know, just meant a lot to Paul that I was willing to do certain things for the business. So, uh, that ingratiated me into him wanting to use me. And then, uh, you know, guys like Taz and, and, uh, Dreamer were already already familiar with me. Sabu was already familiar with me, and that helped ease me ease me into the locker room. And then later on, uh, guys like Tracy Smothers and Tommy Rich would come over the ECW, and I had worked every. There's a period of time I worked every Thursday in Indianapolis, Indiana, for a guy named uh, Mike Sample, Circle City Wrestling. Tracy Smothers were those on those shows. Tommy Rich <clears throat> on those shows. Ricky Morton on those shows. So when Tracy Smothers came over, there's so many. I was becoming familiar with a lot of guys in the locker room. So that kind of led to me becoming part of ECW. But uh, the match that got me noticed was probably my worst match ever. It's like uh, a lot at the time, a lot of people said I looked like King Tough from the Batman TV series because I had the buzz cut and the the chin hair. And uh, they had me booked in this match with a guy doing a Batman gimmick. And uh, local guy, local legend, uh, TC Reynolds, uh, he was like, hey, kid. Here's another. Look. Hey, kid. Uh, you know, the more they pay me, the more I bump, and they ain't paying me that much tonight. I was like, oh, great. You know, so we had the match. It was what it was. But I did the misdemeanor salt, and the ring was as hard as a boxer. It was. It's horrible. But I get to the back, and I know Ravens having this match. Just like, oh, I want to watch Raven. Ravens match. I watch his match, and then after his match, he comes by. I go, oh, uh, good match, Raven. He goes, hey, nice moonsault. I went. Oh, you watched my match, you know, 
So and that led to the next day, him pitching the idea for me becoming Stevie Richards lackey, like a lackey to a lackey to a lackey. And uh, kind of like Russian dolls, one in the uh, goes up. <laughs> Jerry, wasn't uh, Tracy Smothers or Freddie Joe? Wasn't that a uh, wasn't that name a rib off of uh, off you? Freddie Joe Floyd, my brother Jack's true name was Freddie Joe Briscoe, and of course, my first <laughs> name is Floyd. And Vince had been after me for for months and months to create a character for Briscoe Brothers Body Shop, but I'd been around a while. And I did. I didn't want a character from Briscoe Brothers Body Shop that was going to be a jobber. You know, I, I just did. You know, and Tracy, I, I mean, I got what a great worker, what a great, number one, what a great person Tracy Smothers was. So I had no no issues with Tracy at all. I said, guys, there's got to be a, a, another way you go with Tracy. Tracy's too talented to be locked into that. You know, because we had Duke the Dumpster, we had Adam Bob, we had all these guys, but they were all lower mid car guys and if you're going to use briscoe brothers body shop i don't want no lower mid car guy i want to i want a john layfield that's going to be a a top guy you know portraying that character so that you know vance just just making me shut up he said okay we won't do it shut up okay so the next day i'm sitting in a damn production meeting we're going through the the list of matches all of a sudden we come down Next match scheduled for seven minutes will be uh, Joe Blow versus Freddie Joe Floyd from Bowlegs, Oklahoma. I looked up. I said, you asshole. You asshole. I called Vince an asshole right there in the production meeting, right in front of everybody. And he just turned his head down and started laughing his ass off. Got you. So that, that was the rib on me, you know, Freddie Joe Floyd. But, uh, poor Tracy got stuck with it. But uh, – well, yeah. Chavo was uh, when he was Kerwin uh, R. White, I guess it was the the caddy that was off Kerwin Simpley's, right? Kerwin. Uh, yeah, that was right? the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of these maybe were created uh, <laughs> in Vince McMahon's head because as as ribs <laughs> on the guys that are around him. Uh, I remember, like, you know, the, my favorite job guys' names would be like Matt Burns or you know yeah. stuff like that. But hey, if I can take a moment to uh, sure you can. Heap a, heap a little praise on Tracy Smothers. Um, you know, he recently passed away and, uh, man, he was an unsung hero in ECW. Really? Yeah. He was an unsung hero in ECW. Uh, you know, there's a period of time where Paul paid him extra money mm-hmm. to take the young guys in the ring and run mini- miniature dojos before the show. And Tracy would get me, Nova, Danny Doring, Roadkill, Chris Chetty, a whole bunch of guys get in the ring. We would do calisthenics, you know, uh, we do, you know, he'd have us running, you know, intricate spots and just to get us, you know, into the use, into the, you know, uh, the mindset of, you know, doing different things. And like, he would talk to us and pull us aside and talk to us and everything. And there's a whole crew of us from ECW that, uh, owe a good part of our career to Tracy Smothers for, being that locker room leader and, and taking us aside and, and teaching us, you know, cause he, you know, Tracy was one of my favorite wrestlers, you know, growing up, you know, him and him and, uh, Armstrong against the, uh, the midnight express at the bash back in 90 was probably one of my favorite tag me- tag team matches of all time. And, uh, getting to share a locker room with, you know, every Thursday in Indiana and then ECW, what he did for that, that whole crew of young wrestlers was, uh, he gave more to the business than he got back, you know? 
One of my first uh, little storylines was with Freddie Joe Floyd. Dutch mentioned up with it. Dutch Dutch challenged Freddie Joe Tracy to to a match or something, and, and, and of course Freddie Joe beat him real quick. Then Dutch says, "I you can't do it again." And he came out and he did it again. And Dutch says, "You can't do it again." And it's all Dutch's <laughs> idea. It's really funny. And as far as the third time, I come out and jump jump Tracy, and that sets up a little storyline between me and Tracy as Freddie Joe Floyd. But I enjoyed Tracy. He was he was a lot of fun to be with. And good and like you say, a really good worker. He, I think Tracy was one of the most underrated uh, guys that, that we ever had in, in our business up there. I mean, Tracy, Tracy could do anything and he could work with anybody and he could, he could make a lot, a lot of issues back in those days. If you guys will remember, if you were a good worker, I meant you were, you were going to be a jobber because you know? <laughs> yeah, they had to have somebody to make guys look good and, Tracy was one of those guys that he, he could make he could make me look good. He could make Layfield look good. That's the reason we stuck him with Layfield because we <laughs> needed to make him look good. <laughs> he, uh, I work. I was blessed to work with him every night for six months to a year, and um, it was a learning experience. And uh, you know, Manny, why do I hate you, man? <laughs> you know, you'd be you'd be driving down the road in the car with Tracy and point to a field. Cows go, hey, Manny, there's your family. Why do I hate you, man? <laughs> And then, you know, he always do the shadow boxing. He was so loved that, uh, beloved that on the recent episode of the show heels on stars, CM Punk, who made it a guest appearance, based his character off of Tracy Smothers. Wow. And, uh, you know, he, his first line on the show is what's your deal, man. Cause anytime he saw Tracy, he'd walk in meaning what's your deal, man, me and you ECW ran seven shows. They'd have 30 funerals, man. What's your deal? Why, why do I hate you? But he, he, he Here's my favorite Tracy's mother story. Uh, ECW was running a show in a, a building. Uh, well, we used to run a show in a building called the Lulu Temple. That closed down. So we went to the Plymouth meeting National Guard Armory. And it's on mischief night. Uh, the night before Halloween where everybody, you know, is throwing eggs or paper in houses and stuff. So there's this match. Uh, it's like this big tag team scramble match. Gangsters, eliminators. Uh, Dudley's and Balls Mahoney and Axel Rotten. So all the teams are in the ring except for Balls and Axel who are making their ring entrance. So during the course of the entrance, there's there's this crew of college kids in the crowd. There's a local college right there in Plymouth meeting. These frat boys, and they're all wearing white t-shirts and one guy's shirt says fight me and it's spelled F-I-T-E me, fight me. And they're just being rowdy and loud so uh you know during balls mahoney and uh balls and axel's entrance balls and axel go over there and you know slap a fives with the guys you know hey uh. well then a crew of the guys grab axel and pull him over the rail and they start clubbing on him huh. well the, the the locker room i mean the the everybody in the ring saw that the, the gangsters the dudleys and the eliminators hopped the rail Somebody in the locker room yells, riot, the locker room clears. So a call goes out to the local police. There's a riot at a National Guard armory on mischief night. SWAT team comes out for all the cops come out, lights everywhere. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> and there, Tommy Dreamer, who was like our you know, if wrestling with the mob, he would be our conciliary between the boys and Paul. He's out there trying to be a peacemaker with the cops going, hey, big must not understand. He's talking to the cops, right? 
out of corner of his eye, he, he sees Tracy Smothers, who is wearing nothing but a towel, shampoo coming down his face. He leans into Tommy and goes, I'll get the dogs. It starts shadow boxing the canine dogs like. <laughs> and <laughs> Dreamer said it was like one of those scenes in the movies where somebody jumps on a grenade and goes, no, and grabs him, pulls him back into, into the building. And <laughs> Tracy's mother's amongst all this chaos in just a, a, a bath towel and shampoo is ready to fight, you know, you know, canine dogs. <laughs> and the next the next day we're we're leaving uh that was a thursday night the friday night we're driving up to queens it's me jim Malino, and, and paulie uh da- i mean louis dangerously we're driving to new york and uh we made the local news radio we had the news ticker right at the local plymouth you know guard armory ecw and we're like yes we made it but yeah tracy smothers <laughs> i'll take the dogs man and then like we we're like tracy what were you thinking he's like man i wrestled bears i, I could take a dog you know <laughs> <laughs> we almost had a ride, Jerry. Remember when the ECW invaded us in, in Philadelphia with the boys, not with the crowd? Yeah. I, I was going to bring that up, John, and I'm glad you brought it up. Go ahead with Me the too. question. But, yeah. Benny, I want to say this is the closest I ever came to really kicking Bruce Pritchard's ass was this night. <laughs> was you involved? I mean, I, I, after, after, when I found out, I, I mean, you could ask Bruce. Well, I think Bruce was scared to death. I was ready to kill him. It was me and Savio Vega in a Caribbean strap match. And so they, the Bruce smartened up Savio to what was going to happen. The, you know, that, that the Sandman was going to spit the beer on Savio. And he said, the one thing you do, he said, is grab the cowboy and don't let him go over the rail. Because <laughs> no shit. <laughs> and so, but it, well, right before I went out, Lanza didn't want to take the risk. Of, I don't know why he wouldn't, <laughs> I'm not smarting me up to this. Oh. You know, the, and, he, and he turned to me, he goes, hey, if anything happens, don't go over the rail. And I said, Jack, you wouldn't tell me if anything happens, if something isn't going to happen. And he said, well, I'm just telling you something could happen in the one corner with Savio. And if it does happen, just understand it's part of the show. And so when we went out of the ring, Savio went over there and we went on the wrong side. Savio goes, no, we got to go over here. And right then I realized this is where the spot's got to be about to happen. And so when it happened, Savio put the rope around me. He didn't know Lanza had smartened me up. And he goes, just stay here with me. Stay here with me. It's okay. Let's go back in the ring. And but by then, I figured, you know, I knew that was all part of the show. But the boys in the back had gone to Gorilla, and they were just about to head out. Uh, <laughs> I did. No, nobody else was smartened up. <laughs> I did go out. <laughs> Did you? Did you? Well, was you was you there, Brian? Was you there? No, I was not there. Actually, I was at Raven's house watching it. Uh, <laughs> and we had an idea something was going to happen. He was like, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, Paulie and Tommy and Dreamer are going to be at ringside. And then I guess for extra, their form of security, we had other guys placed in the, the building. Perry Saturn was there. Somebody, a couple other guys were there in case. <laughs> I don't know if it would ever happen. The boys hit and they come to protect us or whatever something like that but uh yeah i we watched it and we're just like amazed that it happened and then the next night in hershey taz comes down with the sign and uh hops the rail during the uh the bulldog match uh the tag match with you know sabu fierce taz sign but uh I, what, what was the, the atmosphere in the locker room like when when you went to the back like 
in the end. Well, Mostly- as soon as we got back, uh, Lanza smartened up the guys when they came up because by then it was nobody could stooge off what it was going to was going to happen because it already happened. So got Taker it. and the boys apparently were coming out of the dressing room because you know, I was in the ring with Savio and Lanza meets them there and goes, "Guys, it's a work." And right away, the, you know, the guys were pretty pissed off. They weren't smartened up to it, but. At that point, it's not Tommy Dreamer and Bubba and those guys and Paulie. It's you know, it's part of it's part of the show. So they kind of. I, I was this close to Tommy Dreamer and Bruce grabbed me. He said, "No, no, no, no! It's a work." And I, at that time, I turned to Bruce like I, I was I was going to kill him. I literally was going to kill Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> <laughs> do you still want to? Yeah, because if you do, I'd be fine. I don't think anybody would miss him either. <laughs> so, Jerry, you'd gone out in the you were you out in the arena? Yeah, as a Philly out at that spectrum. I didn't there. know you were out there. I just because I was. I, I made it out to. I don't know how about. I, I I noticed something kind of funny because I was the only one out there. You know, with Bruce, of course, was out there and. I mean, who's Bruce going to stop to be truthful? Uh, nobody, right? <laughs> so my brother, need, my brother needed some backup. My brother Bruce needed some backup. So I was, I was, I, I made it out there, and I was, I was, uh, right before, right when I got there, I guess Dream or something had pushed Bruce, and when I saw that, I was, I was over, I was headed over. Bruce grabbed me. No, it's a work. And at that moment there, I lost it with Bruce, man. <laughs> and by the time we got to the back, they had to separate us. Man. <laughs> I think he's still scared to this day. <laughs> well, Bruce, I didn't have a clue. That was, that was the greatest thing that, in my experience, that I ever had seen because nobody knew about it except, you know, you uh, and Savio and uh, Bruce and Vince and the truck and, 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 and the ECW guys. And I noticed when I come out there, several of the ECW guys' eyes got pretty damn big. Like, he don't know. You know? Yeah, <laughs> but Tommy, was, think, Tommy was close enough for, in my reach where I could have killed him if, I, if, if Bruce hadn't stopped me. I talked to Bubba since. I don't think they knew that I was smart enough. I, they may have known Sabio was. I'm not sure. But This is the first time I learned that you were – smart enough because yeah when you when you watch it your reaction looks genuine like you're walking towards sandman like it's like oof. <laughs> you know it's obvious saves the day but you know just yeah what what a time man when, when you can act, what a time piss me off because you know you're, you're, you're it's a waste yeah. of beer you know <laughs> yeah you wasted a beer and you know you think you're defending your turf and when it happened i realized this is what lanzo was warning me about but still it's like oh come on man we're you know, and you're you're you feel like it's us against them at that point, you know, which it, it shouldn't be, but it's what it felt like. Yeah, and that's kind of when I started to learn subconsciously that ECW was kind of part of WWE. You know, uh, a lot of the boys, you know, it, Paulie always did the us against them thing, but he did it more with WCW, so to speak, because you know, WWE. He grew up in the WWE or WWF, WWF. He worked for Vince Sr. and took photos and all this stuff. So, you know, Paulie was kind of like a WWF lifer. So if you, and, and you know, we, we start getting talent in the locker room from draws to uh, uh, the German guy. I can't think of his name. Um, Rockets, wasn't it? Rockets. Yeah, we got him. You know, uh, Candido. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You guys lost on that trade. 
Yeah, pretty much. That was that was the Vikings Cowboys trade where uh, the, the Cowboys fleeced the Vikings. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but Marcus uh, was a great guy, but he he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, he had the, he, didn't, didn't need to be in a business. He had the worst farts, man. He would just straight, straight, straight up egg beaters. And like, he would like, I, I take pride on my flatulence. You know, I once stopped a concert with a fart, but him on the other hand, just <laughs> you stopped a concert on a, uh, let's hear that story, man. I, that's a good uh, dude. No lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is when I became skinny meanie. Uh, WWE asked me to lose weight, so I lost like 160 pounds. And I'm doing 160. like 100. I went from 390 wow. to 240, something like that. And wow. uh, in like seven, I remember months. when you lost it, I just didn't know it was that much. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Headbanger Mosh's brother, uh, Chaz Warrington's yeah. brother, John. Got walked. Me. I got, I lost 50 pounds on that diet too. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were doing the same deal. Yeah, and uh, I got Jim will gain weight. Yeah, Jim will gain weight. That was a gimmick though for Bruce. <laughs> so I had lost all this weight, and Bruce I was... found it back. <laughs> I lost weight, bit, but I went from my belly to my butt. So uh, no, but I had lost 160 pounds, high protein diet, and uh, me and my friends. Uh, went to see this Van Halen cover. We're in California at the time, and there's a. I'm a huge Van Halen fan. They're my number one band. Eddie Van Halen's the greatest guitar in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the band was called the Atomic Punks. Two of the members have gone on to start a band called Steel Panther, and they're touring the world. But at this time, they're the Atomic Punks. So me and my friends go there, and man, I'm on this high protein diet, and like. I got the bubble guts. I got my belly's gurgling. I'm like, oh man, we got good, such good spot right up here next in front of the stage. So the opening band comes on, and you know, there's people dancing behind me, and they're like elbow me and bumping me. I was like, oh man, they're like first time's okay, second time, oh, okay, this is getting annoying. Third time, all right, man, I'm gonna have to back them up. So I kind of nuzzled my my butt towards them. I let a little. <laughs> So everybody who's going from like this dancing, they're like this, you know, dancing, right? <laughs> but I let that first one go. And I guess that was like inviting a vampire into your house because he's coming back with some friends. <laughs> so I let the first one go and I, I I kept having to, you know, fart. So I was, I, I was like, you know, <laughs> eventually somebody from the back of the bar, 80 feet away goes, Please stop farting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm. so the headliners come on the atomic punks. And you would think I'm making this up, but they're playing the song. You really got me. And, uh, I, f I felt one coming. I was like, Oh my God. No. Oh no. So the singer's coming this way. I'm right here. I let one go and it just meet in the middle. It's like the perfect storm. Two waves <laughs> come together. So he's like, yeah. And then you see him go, Oh, 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 stop, 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 <laughs> stop, stop. <laughs> and the band stops playing. Goes, oh. Man, somebody in the crowd just pooped their pants. <laughs> Every hand in the room. <laughs> I, all I could do is just go. <laughs> he went, oh, you really got it. And the drum was playing on. <laughs> and then they went back. And just, <laughs> and just, I told this story recently. I was like, I reached out to the guys, you know, I was like, 
you were there when it happened. It's like, absolutely, I was there. <laughs> and the singer couldn't continue singing. <laughs> you know? There's always that joke. Oh, your mama's so fat. You know, she made the band skip. But no, I stopped the concert with a fart. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> did you you mentioned about the wwe and wcw and ecw association that Vince was kind of underwriting you know you realize at that point there was a partnership we had kind of heard rumors and i think jerry you know was in the office at the time he he knew them what was fact but did you guys know that vince was working with uh paulie at the time and helping keep ecw going i had a, an inkling that it was happening but nobody outwardly said it but like, if you pay pay enough attention, when you got draws coming in, you got Furnace Lafong coming in, you know, uh, you know, and then uh, Tammy comes in, you know, she's she's doing she, even when she was WWE, she would do little things that weren't broadcasted, but she would just do it for the house, right. you know, uh, you know, she'd be up near the uh, hard cam, and you know, intermission, somebody's playing a kiss song, and she's dancing for the crowd, and you know, getting the crowd riled up, and you know, everybody's like, Sonny. So uh, you always got the inkling that it happened. But then on the other hand, anything related to WCW, Paul would get hot. If it was related to WWE, Paul was cool. Like uh, we were doing WrestlePalooza 98 in Atlanta. And we had, you know, Paul's famous for his pre-show speeches. Like if you ever saw Beyond the Mat, he could he could make us run through walls. We're, you know, he, he gave us a speech. Oh, we're going to Atlanta. If you stay at such and such hotel, don't stay at such and such. A, I can't remember the hotel. He's like, he was so paranoid that they were going to have somebody like a mole at the hotel to set up the boys to get arrested. So we can't be on the pay-per-view that weekend and stuff like that. If you stay at this hotel and you get arrested, that's on you. You're fired. This, that, and the other thing. But if it came down to uh, WWE, you know, he's, he was, he was more than gracious. Like, uh, one time, uh, you know, I, I did the parodies in ECW and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we were Kiss, we're the BWO, uh, Baron Von Stevie and, you know, Blue Dust, stuff like that. So we wanted to do, a, it, we did a show in Connecticut right near the uh, towers. It was, again, Halloween. So everybody wanted to dress, you know, as different gimmicks. You know, Shane Douglas dressed as Dean Douglas. Chris Candido brought back uh, Skip. The body donnas. So me and Nova wanted to be Triple H and uh Shawn Michaels. And I had done Shawn Michaels before, the, you know, the heart attack kid. So I wanted to come out like it were it's supposed to be me and Nova coming out against Shane and and uh Candido. And everybody knows Shane's beef with Shawn Michaels. I was like, we gotta come out, but you gotta hit Shawn Michaels music. And Paul was adamant about us not using WWE music because you didn't want to piss off Vince, you know, because right. he was in close, but you always hear stories about like how Vince was, I mean, uh, Paul was at the, in the, in the writing sessions and stuff like that. And then there's different things we were doing in ECW. I swear to God, I'm not even making this. There was a, there was a show in, in Revere, Massachusetts, a uh, young Danny Doring out of Taz's school house of hardcore is having a match. Me and Al Snow are watching. And Danny just has like this, had this sleazy look, you know, about him. I was like, man, he's got to do like some, some kind of porn star gimmick. And, and me and Al go back and forth like, yeah, he could do this. The, fit, the finisher could be the money shot. And you could do lines like, hey, you, you might know me from uh, my latest film, you know, Schindler's Fist or whatever. Just whatever kind of porn type. We're coming up with porn titles left and right. 
me and Al Snow go over to Paul. We got this idea for Danny Doring, the name of the move, the saying, all this stuff. He goes, guys, that's a great idea. You just came up with a character. That, that's so good. Six months later, hello, ladies. <laughs> and then Val Venus debuts in, in uh, WWE, finishers the money shot. Uh, you might know me from my latest flick. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and their kicker is when I went to WWE, Val will come find me and ask, him, ask me to help him do promos <laughs> on Raw. And I was like, ain't this something? You know, just like me and Al came up the character for somebody in ECW. Paul sold it to Vince. And then I go to Vince and the guy who, you know, they put it on comes to me and asks me to do the, the, the promos. So what was well, the skinny, Gerald? With with Paulie and Vince? Well, they, they formed a partnership. You know, we 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 at the time at the time, you know, talent was was at a premium. And we, you know, there were the territories that dried up at the time. So where are we going to get our talent from? So uh, we do Paul. Paul's group, they had a good solid foundation of guys, including Brian there, was with you know, was, was, was their base of guys, Taz and uh, Tommy and uh, Stevie and guys like that. And we weren't we couldn't get talent, of course, from WCW unless we outbid them, outbid them. And uh, Paul was easy to outbid because he had no money. <laughs> so uh uh Vince uh Vince approached Paul about doing a partnership with him. And then, of course, Paul jumped at the opportunity because at, at the time, as you know, Brian, uh, ECW was drying up because of the, the financial side of it. You know, it, Paul was losing, losing his ass. So we figured if we kept them in business, at least we would have an outlet of talent and a place where we could send our talent. And get and be around a good environment, good be around good basic workers that could elevate the guys. So that was kind of the premise of, of of the partnership was was a place to stick our guys when they weren't ready, but we knew they could be ready real quick, and a place that we could go and pilfer their their talent and come in with us. So it was it was strictly a survival move. It wasn't a fear move that oh they're going to take us over. It was a it was a move. To uh, to benefit the WWE uh, with talent and and, uh, and and a place for us to store talent and bring them back in when they got ready. So it was a simple move, but you know, of course, everybody blows it out of shape, you know. But uh, that's all it was. I mean, and, and it worked out good for both companies. Yeah, I mean, the the matches that we had together, you know, Jerry and I were kind of Jerry Lawler and I were kind of the the two guys who really took on ECW. It was awesome. Yeah, I could have I could have wrestled there every night of the year for my entire career. You know, they hated me and Lawler so much, you know, because we're the ones that really went after them, you know, hard. It was incredible to be in that environment. I never you know, I've always thought meaning that uh, NXT is similar to the fan base of ECW. Maybe not the same demo, but it's the same passion, the same underground feeling uh, that that, uh, ECW had. And I, I totally agree with that. And I kind of wish like when they brought ECW back, uh, they had done, I wish they would have had it done with the original ECW, what they did with NXT kind of like take it out of the big arena, have it in like a studio with the smaller crowd and have that more of a, a underground feel, you know, NXT is part of WWE, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the product because it's a 
such a different, you know, like a, it's a darker building. Uh, the moat is heavily on wrestling and stuff like that. And just, uh, I kind of wish they had done that with the, when they brought back ECW, I wish kind of wish they wanted done the NXT thing that way with ECW because, uh, you know, you watch the, you watch the, the ECW, they, they brought back and it, it, it was really good TV, but the only thing that hindered it was the three letters ECW, you know, we, 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 we being WWE really blew that. I think, I think that was, that was, that was something that I, that I look back on that I see that, that we really blew. We as a company blew it because we just did. I don't think any of us really gave it the respect and, and, and had the, the vision that Vince actually had that, that to make us say more, because just, just as you said, our early TVs were, were really good ECW product. Then we started getting a, you know, it needs to be slicker. It needs to be this. It didn't need to be any of that stuff, except the way we started and the way you guys had it there. So, I, I think we we blew that opportunity to uh, to really make a, another competition, another brand, you know, that was with the WWE. I think we blew it big time because we wanted to slick it up too much. Because the, the original TV, you know, it was dark, and it was and then when then we just started messing with it and putting that WWE slickness on it. And I think that's where we we started going down with it there. And I always said the uh, the original. I mean, uh, the new ECW was kind of like that scene in Wayne's world when, uh, Wayne and Garth sell their show to, uh, Noah's arcade and they go to the first taping after Noah's arcade buys it and they go, man, this is Wayne's basement, but this isn't Wayne's basement because they got the big bright neon lights and all this stuff. And they got it's the slick, you know, uh, theme song instead of them just singing it. Uh, yeah, I, I wish they would have, you know, there, there was always that rumor, uh, that Shane Douglas I mean, not Shane, Shane McMahon had wanted to buy ECW and do like a, a strictly a web series with it, which I think would have been an awesome idea. This could have been like the precursor to doing something like when, like everybody's got a show on YouTube now and stuff like that, but he could have done a internet based show, keep it the way it was and, you know, try bringing advertising that would be generated towards that kind of product. And I think ECW and Shane McMahon's hands probably would would have made it kept it kept it a little bit more cutting edge, you know, because he was a younger guy. He, from what I was told, he, he was a big Shane McMahon was a big fan of the original ECW and, uh, you know, like the show. And like when I, when I went there, me and him would talk about ECW stuff. So I think if they would have had like, kind of like how triple H took over NXT and that was his baby. If ECW could have been Shane McMahon's baby and let him, you know, go off to the side. And cause it's like, you know, when, Vince wanted to get into promoting Vince senior gave Vince, uh, Vince junior, a little town up in New Hampshire to run to, you know, get his sea legs in, in promoting, you know, now we see, you know, Vince did the same thing with triple H here's NXT, get your sea legs with the promoting. If he would have gave ECW to Shane McMahon, that could have been Shane's idea of, you know, kind of like starting his own little promotion, like, Vince's father had done to him, you know, get your, your, your sea legs with promoting and get experience that way. Was he Shane was, 
Shane was a perfect demographic for that too. And Shane was a huge fan because of all of our meetings Shane would bring up, especially when we started the ECW brand. Shane, Shane, that's when Shane started really getting involved because he was such a fan for that. And uh, having that voice of that age group, you know, that you guys were appealing to was very beneficial to it. But like I said, it started out that that way, but uh, we just we just couldn't let it be. We had to slick it up a little bit. Yeah. Was ECW doomed to, to fail as far as a traditional wrestling program where you had not necessarily pay-per-view, but national TV contracts? You know, Attitude Era really pushed the envelope. And at times, at times, WWE would push it too far. Then you'd have to apologize and pull back just a little bit. ECW did the same thing, except you were further past where, you know, you were way out there with controversy. That built the fan base, mm-hmm. but it also repelled some TV contracts. Was that the, the death knell for ECW because of the controversy that you guys probably would never be able to keep a national contract? Uh, in my mind, ECW was doomed from the start just because again, attitude error, everybody's competing for talent. You have to overpay a little bit to make sure your, your marquee guys don't jump ship. And then, uh, when ECW kind of started making money, like say in 97, they made money. They're still paying for 96. So when they go to 98, they make money in 98, but they're still paying for 97 part of 96. So they're kind of in this, you know, they're kind of like bailing water out of the boat as water's still coming in. Never catch up, <clears throat> never catch up. But, uh, if they could have just got a deal, if the TNN deal would have worked where TNN put out money for the cost of production and advertising and stuff like that. I think ECW could have stayed afloat. And I say this all the time, uh, had ECW survived, it would have became more of a, a promotion like ring of honor. It, what they came, uh, so ring of honor was started, you know, with Gabe Sapolsky who, uh, you know, uh, was Paul Heyman's uh, protege, you know, you know, Paul, Gabe learned from Paul. He was a disciple of Paul and learned everything from Paul. And, those early ring of honor shows were so awesome because of Gabe Sapolsky, you know, and his influence, I think ECW was starting to slowly turns towards being a ring of honor because there's so many, uh, younger towns, like more cruiserweight towns coming in. There's a little bit less blood, a little bit less crazy stuff. And, and I just had this uh, conversation the other day, you know, people there, there's this, uh, misconception that ECW, every match was a bloodbath, you know, you know, you would have like the main event or like a co-main event that was a little bit crazy, like the Dudleys. And then you had new Jack do some crazy stuff, but you know, the, the underneath, there was some great wrestling between Jerry Lynn, Tommy Rogers, Bobby Duncan, Jr. Uh, Brian Lee, that we had a great crew of really good workers, Tracy Smothers, little Guido. But I think as time went on and got to be around 99, 2000 and, you know, Rob Van Dam. I mean, he was our Shawn Michaels, you know, as you know, you know, WWE had Shawn Michaels. We had Rob Van Dam. He was our Shawn Michaels. He's our star. I think had ECW started making money and survived, it would have became more of a, uh, more marketable, you know, being more based around athletics and stuff like that, you know, like a ring of honor. Yeah, and it was uh, it was such a good uh, angle there during that time. You know, I don't know if it got forced in that angle because of NWO and the great angle in WCW. But you know, right after that, just months after, was the invasion angle 
with ECW, and it was it was it was done really really well. You know, it was a lot of you guys came in the time that you had as Blue Dust. <laughs> I, I I I love Dustin. Uh, I wrote a lot with uh, Harry Wyndham and, and Dustin. You know, for a couple of years, Dustin's a good guy. He's very very creative. You had to have a lot of fun working with Dustin as Blue Dust. I had so much fun with Blue Dust, and the, the fact that people still bring up the match. Uh, me and Dustin had that St. Valentine's Day massacre to this day is uh, a testament to, uh, you know, Dustin and Goldust. And, you know, he really took me under his wing. Um, I started doing Blue Dust and ECW. Uh, you know, I was doing the parodies. And uh, right around the time Dustin had done the uh, naked Goldust promo with the Intercontinental belt, uh, <laughs> Paul pulled me aside at a show and Jim Thorpe said, You're coming up to the TV studios. Monday, and we're going to do, recreate that promo. You'll be naked with I have a little uh, mini doll, which I think you can see right there. I still have it. <laughs> uh, and I was going to do the recreate that. So, and this is, you know, the, the time that the character Blue Dust almost got me arrested. Uh, <laughs> so we, we go up to New York. Uh, I get buy all the paint, get there, get ready to go paint myself, you know, because we're going to go to the local park and do this. And yet I forgot to paint. So <laughs> I open up my gear bag. I'm like, where's the paint? Yeah, I'm looking at Sandman who's there. Sandman Raven, Sandman's wife, Lori, Tyler, uh, Paul, Stevie, camera crew, everything. Sandman goes, yeah, what's up? What's wrong? I said, like, I forgot to paint. Don't say anything. Yo, meanie forgot to paint. Scooched <laughs> me right off. <laughs> So dreamer goes, all right, let's go to the supermarket and find something. So <laughs> we hop in dreamers car. We go to the supermarket, we get cake icing and blue food dye. So we go back to the thing and the most, you know, uh, romance thing you could ever do is me, you know, me and dreamer making this concoction of cake icing and blue food dye. And I'm, I'm putting it on my front and, dreamer has to like slather my back with this blue food guy and where we're shooting is two blocks away from the uh, tv studio so it's summertime it's july there's gnats and i'm covered in sugar and uh, so we're walking and we're like oh man if the fans can see us now right so <laughs> we do the promo and the promo surrounded uh, around the time uh raven had steven a mission to find the dirtiest skankiest woman on the planet Eventually, you know, he, he had brought in Divine Brown from the Hugh Grant scandal, all this other thing. So Stevie does this whole hype going, hey, boss, I found the dirtiest, skankiest woman ever. I present to you blue dust. And I'm there. Now, imagine it's a park in a small New York suburban neighborhood. There's a swing set. There's a bridge to the sliding board and all that stuff. You got this 300 pound naked man laying on the drawbridge with the little doll. And I start doing this promo, you know, you know, welcome to my playground. Or uh, I, I quoted a Ron Jeremy line from uh, the vacuum clean salesman or whatever. And uh, Raven does his line going. Raven was supposed to say, sorry, Stevie, she's not feminine enough. And he kind of flubbed his line and said, said feminine. You know. But I didn't sell it. I didn't go. Uh, I just did the blue dust. So Paul comes over and goes, you did great. He flubbed the line and you didn't 
right character. You, you blah, blah, blah. And while he's building me up saying I did the right thing, this big spotlight shines on us. And instead of me just covering up, I go, oh, I jump up and there's my big pale buttocks. It you know, ah. looked, like, looked like an oatmeal buffet just everywhere. Ah. And we're like, oh, my God, there's the cops, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a cop comes over and goes, um, I don't know what you guys are doing, <laughs> but please stop. I, I don't I don't want to do the paperwork. And we're like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm pulling out my shorts. And, and then, you know, imagine this. Me naked. Raven, Stevie, Sandman, Lori. Sandman's seven-year-old son, Tyler. And a film crew. It looks like a bizarre porn set or whatever. It just, I mean, Sandman goes, yo, can we do one more scene? And we're like, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. So I did. I did. Blue dust and you know, almost got arrested in the park doing blue dust. Start doing it at the arenas. Go to the WWE and I'm in the job squad and the job squad is kind of starting to devolve. You know, uh, Al's breaking off here. Bob's going there. Well, they do this thing where gold dust steals Al Snow's head. And I, you know, you know, gold dust, the master of the mind games. I pitched to Vince Russo. I was like, hey, gold dust is the master of the mind games. And he stole Al the Snow's head. I'm in the job squad. Now, why don't I bring back Blue Dust? I'll play mind games with the guy who plays mind games. Start to fear. And he's like, you know, listen, he's like, he's like you know what? He's like, yo, bro, go, go get your gear. Yeah, well, we're doing it. I was like, <laughs> I was like, do you want me to get new gear? He's like, no, nah, just wear where you were in ECW, which was not the, not much to say. It was a pair of Looney Tune pajamas I spray painted blue. And then, <laughs> I think I dialed it up with some airbrush art. I was like, are you sure? Yeah, bro. Just get what you were. And he said, I was like, okay. You know, uh-huh. you know I was going, I was going to go buy the whole real blue dust, <laughs> like gold dust and stuff like that. And then we had the match and, uh, and we had the feud and, uh, you know, credit to Dustin. He was so cool. I I'd seen him on the show. I was like, Hey man, I hope you don't mind that whole blue dust thing. He's like, Oh man, you know, imitation serious form of flattering, but let me do the gimmick against him was awesome and you know in that match you know uh at st valentine's day massacre he um dustin was really hurting he had a, a really bad back injury and we went into the cave room with uh pritchard and he was like man i don't know how much i could give you and he's like do what you can so we we based on the match we did we had a lot of we had a lot of fun uh i did a couple of things you know like normally on the paper, you don't want to powder out and go up halfway up the aisle. Like it's a house show, but I would do that to, you know, give good Dustin a, a chance to not exert anything on his back. And he came out and threw me back in. I just big sell for him, you know, go home and, and, uh, but then eventually we started, you know, tag team, you know, became a tag team and, uh, I learned so much from him and he was so great. I, I became the meanie again. And, you know, meaning gold does seem like a natural click of you know oddities you know we weren't the oddities but we we're a pair of oddities that uh worked very well together and uh, I, I owe a lot to dustin for bringing me into his world into his character's world and uh let me uh be able to support myself and my family yeah dustin was incredibly talented everything he did is yeah a really smart guy but you you did get him one time with uh your balls being out uh oh my god <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so, uh, 
I, I want to say this was in Connecticut is, or Arizona or something like that. And it, this was the, the, around the <laughs> wall, Arizona. Oh, <laughs> man. Texas, Florida. <laughs> so, Long one, Oklahoma. <laughs> Fernum and Durnum. Um, this is in the era where we would do a live raw Monday tape Tuesday. So we're taping on Tuesday and uh, they want me to do a parody of the Nitro Girls be the raw boy. So uh, this is during the whole blue dust, gold dust feud. So they're ladies and gentlemen, raw boy. And I come out and do the whole dancing and stuff that, you know, and gold <coughs> from behind because we're still in the feud. And I, you know, he beats me all the way down to the, uh, the ring and he, he, he throws me in the ring and he sets me up for the gold, uh, the uh, shattered dreams kick. And I feel one leg go over the ropes. <laughs> I feel the second leg go over the ropes. And then I just feel like I'm like, uh oh, and I just feel my, my balls pop out of my shorts. So as that happens, I'm facing the Titan Tron. I look up at the Titan Tron <laughs> and my balls are on the Titan Tron. <laughs> and I'm saying if the, the camera adds 10 pounds, how many cameras did they have on my balls? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I look from the that's, that's where the term testister or fortitude came about. <laughs> it looked like a baby in a beanbag chair. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go from the Titan Tron. I looked at Dustin and Dustin goes, you know, he's, he's trying to play. He gives a kick. I sell. Wait, wait a minute. What are you thinking though? When your balls are out on the Titan Tron? I mean, are you not, <laughs> what is your goal? They have made more cameos than any part of my body. It just like, you know, <laughs> there's times in ECW where I'm laying there on the dead cell and the, you know, Mano's telling you, know, referee Jim Milo, tell me his balls are out. Now the ref goes, no, <laughs> I'm just laying there. <laughs> this is before I, you know, that was before I learned to wear tights underneath my Daisy Dukes, but the, here I am wearing Daisy Dukes, but it happens. It's just like anything. You can't reach down and, you know, yeah. I got enough heat for fixing my pants during, you know, the thing, you know, tuck my, my, my boys away. So we get to the, the match the segments over and we go to the back and this is one of those shows where the uh, production truck was in the building and I get the golf clap from all the boys at the, uh, the uh, monitor. Give me the golf clap. Like, ah, meanie. And guys were coming out of the production truck. Ah, meanie. I go back to the bath. I'm like, ah, yes, yes, yes. And I go in the back and me and Dustin in the bathroom. He's like, man, it, it just looked like a pair of hooves. It looks like you were giving birth to a baby, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I was like, man, I'll never live that down. You know, I would always see like the late great Luna Vachon at like an indie show. Man, you remember when your balls fell out of all? <laughs> <laughs> it gave new men into camel toes, right? Oh my God. I'd boost knuckle. <laughs> I'd boost knuckle. It's just, oh my God. But uh, yeah. You know, this, this, these are the things that, you know, that happened in a career that, uh, you never live down, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that nobody ever forgets. It was, uh, Matt Cardona was wrestling with the guy when he pulled his trunks off. Uh, Oh my God. Yes. I think it was San Antonio. Were you in the gorilla then? Uh, when I was in gorilla and I was one hollering at the referee telling me to get us uh, going to heads back. <laughs> he won't do it. The referee kept giving me that signal there. 
Then there's the and, and today I think we we might all relate to uh I was wrestling in Detroit for ECW. I was wrestling uh Jason Knight. Uh Paul had us doing the loop and uh he was having Jason, you know, you know, Stevie had just left for WCW and I was just trying to find my way doing a series of singles matches with Jason. So we're in, in Detroit and we're having the match we've had around the loop. <laughs> and Jason hits me with this clothesline. I take a nice snap quick snap bump and i hear and i pooped myself in the, during the course of the in the first two minutes of the match and i'm just like oh no so jesus snap mares me over it takes his chin lock and i'm just wafting and i'm just like, oh, oh my god and then uh i had a guy who was managing me at the time uh bill wiles he's doing a character called boogaloo bill wiles breakdance or whatever he's at ringside and he the smell hits the ringside and he thinks it's the crowd. <laughs> and he looks at the crowd and goes, Oh my God, you people stink. And he goes around to the other side of the ring and it starts hitting that side of the ring. He goes, Oh my God, what, what is that? Right. So we go another couple of minutes. I do a moonsault. You know, we, that's the things you do when you poop your pants. You still do a moonsault and miss. <laughs> you know, so go to the back. And again, Sandman stooges off the locker room. Hey, meanie pooped his pants. <laughs> I go straight to the showers. I only go to the locker room and I'm, I'm leaning against the wall with the water, just hosing it. And all the boys come in <laughs> and Paul come in and go. Hey! <laughs> and so, uh, somewhere in Inkster, Michigan, there's a pair of soiled underwear on the roof of a community center. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to find one day, <laughs> Oh, but I, uh, yeah, it's a real fraternity, the, the old uh, ECW. You know, you guys had a, a niche that was incredible. Uh, yeah. the, the, what is the feeling among the boys? I mean, Paul Heyman, uh, I think, is a genius guy. But he was with duct tape and bailing wire trying to keep ECW running. As you say, you know, when you're starting up a company, you're trying to compete with a billionaire and, and Vince McMahon, who wasn't a billionaire at the time, became a billionaire. It was really a, a tough slog. What's the thoughts of all the boys in ECW about, about Paul Heyman now? Everybody's got their, uh, post ECW depends on how you were affected by the closure. Uh, a lot of people were fine. You know, ECW closed a lot of people. There's a lot of people who lost the mortgages on their house. Uh, they lost cars, you know, they went into debt. You know, some other people were fortunate enough to find work elsewhere and they did. Okay. Uh, me myself, I went back to ECW after, you know, WWE released me and I went back to ECW. So I was kind of double dipping. Like WWE didn't care what I did as long as I didn't go to WCW. So I was still getting my WWE, uh, six month, whatever till my contract ran out plus Paul. So I wasn't really affected by the closing of ECW, but, uh, in hindsight, everybody, uh, any rational human being would say they owe their career to, to Paul Heyman for giving us an outlet to shine and find our voices. Paul, that's the good thing about Paul. He allowed you, I mean, he, he came up with great ideas, but he was always open to interpretation and suggestion. You go to an ECW locker room and Paul sets his table right in the middle of the locker room with his tablet or brings in the napkins. He wrote the show on at lunch that day. And he's open to anybody approaching him and saying, Hey, I, I got this idea. And if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, he would say, yeah, let's try something else. But he gave people a platform 
to, you know, uh, make a career, learn their craft. You know, when I went first went to the locker room, you look around, there's Tommy rich, there's Terry funk, there's Sabu, there's Paul, there's dreamer and a, a rotating cast of vets that would come in. And, you know, if you did something in the ring, if you did something good, they told you what you did, right. If you did something wrong, they'd pull you aside and say, Hey, next time do this, that, and the other thing. And it was such a great atmosphere to learn. And now it was a little bit crazy. It was a little bit like ECW was one part animal house, one part slap shot major league with a little bit of Rocky horror picture show thrown in there with the crowd because the crowd was like a Rocky horror picture show. They knew, they knew the chance. They knew the songs. They knew your back history before you even went to the ring at the ECW wrestling show. The fans knew had your whole bibliophile in, in their head, your, your, your biography. But, uh, you know, Paul allowed that Paul built that. And, um, you know, sometimes Paul wasn't always, you know, up front with some of the boys cause he had to make sure you showed up and, you know, performed. But when it came to the fans, Paul was upfront and honest with the fans. And, uh, you know, if we did good, we did good. If we messed up, we admitted it. And, uh, it, it was, it was just a great, it was a great atmosphere. I had, I was only in the business a year and a half when I went to ECW and I made so many mistakes and there's so many things you probably should have fired me for, you know, there was an instance where I went to a, a WCW pay-per-view and incognito, you know, just, I was, I was like, yeah, I ain't going to sit front row, but you know, it's like my first year in the business and I, I'm sitting there and the camera caught me on, they caught me on camera. So the next you know week I go up to the studio and Paul and the uh, Perry Saturn go, Oh, you're that guy from the WCW show, you know, stuff like that. And dreamer pulled me aside and said, Hey, Meanie, look, understand you're in a different atmosphere. Now, if you go to a show, you should be in the back. You shouldn't be in the stands. You know what I'm saying? From percep perception. And that's you know another lesson I learned. But Paul forgave me and knew just like Jerry forgave me with the, uh, the first class ticket thing, you know, and allowed me to make that mistake and learn from that mistake. So, but you know, there it was such a great learning tree, that locker room, uh, in hindsight, I can't say anything bad about Paul. I was a green as grass kid, a year and a half into business who had no right to be in the wrestling ring because I grew, uh, how I grew up asthmatic. Uh, and it's kind of like a Rudy story, you know, just, you know, you know, I, sh I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have gone as far as I did, but I did, you know, how I, I grew up against all these different odds and stuff like that. But, and Paul allowed me to be me. He allowed me to, you know, my character was originally based off the L submarine character, but eventually I, it became more of me just with the volume turned up and Paul allowed that. And I, you know, I owe it to him. I owe it to Raven. I owe it to Stevie, Nova, all the guys, you know, Tommy rich, Tracy's mothers, all the veterans who, who pulled me aside and Paul created that atmosphere for people to grow and learn. And, and now and we're, we're, go ahead, go we're ahead. sure, we're sure glad they did Brad, because you've turned into a, a really good young man and a really good professional. And I, I've spent some time up in Philly around the monster factory there. And I, I see that you get involved with those kids there and you're passing on the knowledge. And I've watched the coach. I've watched you handle the instructions. And they, they, those kids look up for you, uh, to you. And it's really great that Danny has somebody like you to come in. 
that made it and it made it from those odds that you made it from because you're right you 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 beat the odds on, on just being here today and man i i you you you, you turn into a heck of a businessman and 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 a legend in this business and and you got one of the, the loveliest, sweetest wives in, in, in the entire business. And please pass my regard along with her. But we really appreciate you taking your time. We know you're pushed for time today. And uh, and so thanks so much for allowing us to come into your house and you taking the time out of your schedule to be on with us. Hey, uh, this is a privilege and an honor. Uh, your words carry weight, Gerald. Uh, you. You know, uh, when I talk to younger kids in this business, I, I'm not so much a, a wrestling coach, but I'm a life coach. Uh, learn, learn from the things I did right, but most importantly, learn from the mistakes I made as well, because I made plenty of them and I, I still managed to uh, survive the uh, punches. But, you know, uh, <laughs> and very few did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, Jerry's not. Jerry, as soon as it showed, came and double crossed me. <laughs> Look up there. <laughs> That's right. Oh, wise guy. Thank you so much. You know, I, I appreciate our friendship. People don't realize we're our friends. I, I wish the incident had never happened. I told you when I first went in that room with you, I didn't want to fight. What I wanted to do was either, you know, I didn't want to fight in the ring, especially. You know, I didn't know where you stood. Yeah. So you want to make money. And we end up doing that. We end up doing uh, some pretty good business. And we became friends almost from, from that point forward, I guess. And yeah. have been good friends over the years. And, and I'm very proud of that and uh, very proud of, of what you're doing. And uh, I'm you. really happy that uh, you end up coming on the show, despite Jerry trying to bait us into something. Hey, well, thank you, John. Uh, like I said, we had an unfortunate incident. Um, but, you know, and, and the thing that really talked about it is I was a fan of, uh, well, I, I am a fan of yours, but leading up to that, I was a fan of you, you know, a fan of your work. So when things started happening and I was so green and not understanding of what was happening, it kind of was kind of like, you know, don't meet your heroes kind of thing. So when I left, I was kind of, you know, bitter about it. And then we had our issue, but the best feeling in the world is able to work out a difference and say, Hey, sorry and shake hands squash a beef and move forward uh when you carry a grudge or a beef with somebody you're not hurting anybody else but yourself but if you can have a conversation with somebody that you have a beef with and see where they're coming from and they can see where you're coming from and have a mutual understanding that hey it was a big misunderstanding that's the best feeling in the world when the best feeling in the world is when i shook your hand you shook my hand and we said, Hey, let's, let's go make some money with this to the point to where the boys thought the whole thing was a work. And we're like, Oh, that whole thing was a work. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, that's right. That's, that was that. That was actually because late years later, I tried to bring you in for something like Royal Rumble or something. You almost got me into the Royal Rumble. That's right. Phil. And uh, it was down to me and Bubba Ray and they picked Bubba. I, I get it. No big Damn deal. Damn that Bubba Dudley. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate the fact that you, took the initiative to have me have a special moment in my hometown because I debuted for ECW in Philly, uh, debuted for WWE in Philly, had my WrestleMania moment in Philly. I almost had my Royal Rumble moment in Philly, but thanks to you, it, it almost became a reality. 
Well, thanks, Manny. And I look forward to coming up to the Monster Factory. Jerry has been up there and told me how much he enjoyed it. I look forward to coming up and uh, seeing you in Philly. But most importantly, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, thank you. And if I could do one quick plug, one quick plug. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to support the Blue Meanie, go to prowrestlingtees.com slash Blue Meanie, where you can get that fine looking shirt that Gerald Briscoe's wearing, the BWO shirt. I also, I also have a podcast. Go to mindandamini.com, where every Monday, me and Josh Chernoff talk about everything everything from sports, music, movies, and tons of useless knowledge. So go to mindandamini.com. Mindandamini.com and prowrestlingtees slash Blue Meanie. Is that what it is? Yes, sir. Awesome. I'll have to give me a shirt. The only old shirt I've got is uh, one I stole from the uh, Briscoe Brothers body shop. <laughs> Uh-huh. And Jerry still sends me bills for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, baby. Thank you.